episode 191 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Fly with Garmin Avionics, then grab your mobile device and make the Garmin Pilot app your cockpit companion. Get advanced functions you'll use before, during, and after every flight, including updating your aircraft's databases and logging engine data, plan, file, fly, log, with Garmin Pilot. Pilot to Pilot is brought to you by The Finer Points. These guys are constantly adding content to the Ground School app. Check it out at learnthefinerpoints.com. So, hey, I'm Craig Fuller. I'm the founder of FreightWaves, which is a technology company that's involved in supply chain. And recently, I bought Flying Magazine. So I am the new owner of Flying, a pilot. I fly an Icon A5 and a Technoma store. AV Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams, and I am your host. Today's podcast is with Craig Fuller. Craig is the new owner of Flying Magazine. That's right. Flying Magazine has changed ownership. If you have not seen uh, the posts or read the articles, it is a new owner. And Craig comes on to talk anything and everything Flying Magazine, his aviation story, and what his plan for Flying Magazine is. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you do, please leave a review on iTunes, add it to playlist on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Make sure to check out Pilot's Coffee, the best coffee in the game. And Ava Nation, I want to take up too much of your time. So without any further ado, here's the new owner of Flying Magazine, Craig Fuller. Craig, what's going on? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk with you. Uh, obviously, uh, you, like you said, you are the new owner of Flying Magazine. And I think anyone that thinks about aviation media that can remember as far back as being a kid, it probably has some kind of story of seeing the Flying Magazine, reading it, touching it, feeling it. It's had such a role and has played such a, it's been so impactful in aviation and getting media out there and just sharing everyone's love of aviation. So it's it's exciting to see new ownership. Uh, it's definitely an interesting time for old school media, which I'm sure we can get into a little bit too and the transition to new school media. But uh, talk a little bit about that before we get into your story. Just what was it for you that stuck out about Flying Magazine and why did you think it was appropriate to, to buy it now? Well, I've been reading Flying Magazine since uh, as far back as I can remember. So I started flying at 13 years old really inspired after Microsoft Flight Simulator and the movie Top Gun. Always been fascinated with airplanes as far back as I can remember. And flying was a part of my life. Uh, I had flown really uh, up through college and had stopped and just life sort of other priorities took place. And I didn't get back into flying until earlier this year. I'm now 42 years old. I'm a, I'm a media executive. I've start, started a uh, really successful media business that's digital media, B2B, enterprise media. And I started to consume uh, aviation content that was out there, including Flying Magazine, and just felt like that there was a lot of opportunity for improvement uh, at Flying. And it's an iconic brand that I think, as you mentioned, means so much to so many people and certainly me, and uh, decided that I wanted to make it a part of uh really my portfolio of media businesses. And so I, I acquired it. I'm really excited about it. When you look at flying media as a whole, and, and not just what it's done, but where it is today in the new age of media, I mean, podcasts, Instagram, uh, it's all social. It's all kind of a different kind of intake. Where do you see print magazines? And I followed you on Twitter and I've heard you kind of talk about how 
uh, the kind of Apple Newsweek thing and getting away from that and really focusing on print and how these kind of niche uh, um, communities really still love print magazines. Do you still see that with Flying Magazine? Yeah, it's it's really interesting because when I first thought about buying Flying Magazine, my instincts were to shut down print altogether. I, you know, I'm a digital media executive, uh, and my business uh, Freightwaves is growing really fast, but it's all digital. So we have streaming TV, we have podcast, we have, uh, you know online, uh, but we we don't do print. And I've always sort of looked down on print magazines, sort of a legacy of the past. And so I didn't really think about doing anything with print when I first bought Flying Magazine. And it was only after I did a lot of diligence and talked to the community and really understood what print meant to the reader base that I understood that there is a really important connection that you have with print that you don't have with digital. And so digital is really powerful because of the data. Digital is really powerful because of the fact that there is no limit to how much content you can produce and the type of topics and the nuances and the niches that you get out of it and all the different formats between video and audio and, and, and text. And, and so, and the integration to social media, there's just so much you can do with digital and that, First of all, I'm very excited for flying because we get the chance to make those investments. But one of the things I learned about print that I didn't appreciate going into it is that print has an entirely different connection to the reader that is very different than digital. And I, I guess I would use the best example of this would be if you think about when when we're on Twitter or we're on Facebook as a as a or LinkedIn as a community, uh, we generally are just scrolling through the news feed and being inundated with information. If we see something that's really interesting, perhaps somebody tweeted something or perhaps there's a beautiful photo on Instagram, we're going to spend a few seconds sort of consuming that and thinking about it. But then we're moving on to something else. And, you know, it goes from, for, for me, it goes from flying to media to venture capital to maybe some pop politics that shows up in my feed. It's hard to keep my attention span on one thing. The thing about print is that you get to enter this journey, particularly when we're talking about something like aviation, you get to go on the journey with the into the experience, into the lifestyle of becoming an aviator. So you can sit and read the magazine without being inundated with all of these other things and get to go on this journey that I think is only available in a printed publication. And so I, I think it's very similar if you think about books, do this. You sort of get lost into the story. I think magazines also have that opportunity. And one of the things that we're really trying to do is take flying from a magazine that has, you know, really lost its way in terms of print. The quality hasn't been there over the last couple of years to really bring it up to the best in class standard for print publications. And so over the last couple of months, I have subscribed to dozens of publications of magazines that have really strong communities and really strong identifications to them, all sorts of different hobbies. And I've I've really started to appreciate how much a physical print that's done with really high quality photography, really high quality long form stories, that's timeless, how much that can mean to a reader. And I'm really excited to relaunch Flying's print publication in addition to investing uh, a significant amount of money and resources into digital. Yeah, it's really interesting with a magazine, uh, the intent that you show when you open up a magazine. Like you have the intent, 
to sit there for 10, 15, 20 minutes to either read an article, read a couple articles where when you're talking about digital media, where you see one tweet that you like, and then two seconds later, you see a completely different topic and you will never go back to that original tweet, or maybe you'll get off the aviation community and you'll start reading politics or you'll start reading something else. But when you open up a magazine, you're, you're set, you're setting out a set amount of time to sit there and read, whether it's in an FBO, when you're waiting for fuel, you're going to sit there and you're going to read and you're going to skim through whatever it is. And you're going to be so open to it. And you're probably going to spend a little bit more time. So that is very kind of an interesting thing to think about. And, and like we said earlier, this has played such a prominent role. Like, I mean, I can't even tell you when I fly and you always see flying magazine in there and you always pick it up, you, whether you don't read it or you just look at the, the cover, but you always like see it and you always kind of hold such a special place in aviation. So it's really cool to see uh, new hands take it over and um, just the excitement around it because there were was worries that maybe it's dead, maybe it's not coming back. But I think it's really cool that you took this uh, opportunity to put some new blood into it. Yeah, look, I'm a pilot first and I am as, as diehard of an a- aviation enthusiast as they come. Uh, you know, I was the kid who, and I'm, I'm sure many of the listeners can identify with this, has had the airplanes, you know, hanging from the sky and the posters. And I remember ripping out, you know, photography uh, of airplanes out of Flying Magazine and putting it on my, you know, turn it into a poster on my wall as a kid. I, I you know, I'm an aviation fanatic. I'm an airplane fanatic. And for me, this is the equivalent to buying the Yankees. So if you think about it from a, you know, I think every kid who loves sports. And I was not a huge professional sports guy. I was college football, but can't, I can't buy the Baylor Bears, which I would if I could. But, you know, you think about it, but my brother was really into baseball. And for him, owning the Atlanta Braves would have been his dream. For many people, owning the Yankees is sort of the premier uh, baseball, uh, you know, iconic brand. And, and I think of Flying Magazine is very similar to that for people that are in aviation. This is... This is the most iconic media brand in aviation that really represents everybody. So it represents the student that's trying to learn how to fly or wanting to learn how to fly, maybe even an enthusiast who will never fly, but just happens to like beautiful airplanes and the stories of the aviators, all the way to the, the captains of the largest aircraft in the world and, and, and folks that are in the military. And so flying represents all avenues of that. And because of that charter, because it is so broad, we have the opportunity to reinforce it with, uh, you know, beautiful photography, beautiful stories, really engaging content. And that's what we're planning to do. There's one more thing about print that I really appreciate is, uh, you know, my wife buys these uh, you know, these relatively expensive photography books and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're a couple hundred bucks and, and up and she puts them on the coffee table and she sort of displays them around the house because it's a way of sort of, you know, it's a piece of art. And I think what I hope to accomplish with flying is that my wife is very particular about how our house looks and what we can keep on a coffee table would be proud to have a copy of flying magazine on the coffee table because it's a beautiful piece of art and not something that uh, is just sort of cluttered. I think the car magazines have figured this out. Like there are some really good car magazines that are sort of, uh, if you're a car enthusiast, you sort of have them and they're beautiful photography. I think that's what we can accomplish with Flying Magazine. I think it's very smart because whenever I am either making something, creating something or want to do something, 
the first person I take it to is my wife. And if it's a wife approved, then I know that it's going to do well everywhere else because she holds me, anything I do and just everything to a higher standard. And if it can meet those standards, like you said, if it can meet coffee table standard, then you know it should do well. So I think that is, uh, you're on the right track there for sure. If it's wife approved, it's good to go. <laughs> yeah. And I think pilot, you know, it's funny because like if you know pilots and obviously you folks listening to this, uh, this podcast, dude, you know, we're all very proud of our hobbies and we love being pilots or being associated with this community. We like, we like to tell other people about it. And I think it's funny since I, I acquired fly magazine, I do a lot of zoom calls with people that I'm either interviewing or talking to and almost to a person, if they're in the flying community in the background, they'll either have a model airplane or they'll have a picture of an airplane. It is, you know, this is a community that's very proud of its hobby. Uh, very proud of flying. And for some people, it's a career. Others, it's a hobby. It's a love and it's a passion. And I think we as pilots love to display that. I think what we at Flying Magazine need to do is just reinforce that and be a, a part of that community, helping build something that is timeless. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I think something interesting, I've never really had the chance to talk about an acquisition. How did you know Flying Magazine was for sale? Like, what was the process in you even going after this? Was this a, a lifelong goal or is someone you just randomly heard one day? It's like, hey, I think Flying Magazine is up for sale. And you're like, done. We got to make this happen. What did this and what did it look like? How does this even start? So I, I'm in media. I'm a media executive. Um, you know, I have, I have an enterprise or, or B2B media business. And there's this sub community of media executives where like any industry, you love to talk about your industry. And there's, there is a media publication that talks about media. And it's a newsletter that goes out to a couple hundred or a couple thousand media executives that are, you know, C-suite executives at some of the largest media companies and, you know, smaller companies like myself. And there was this article about our magazines, the new trophy assets for billionaires. And it was about Mark Benioff, the founder of Salesforce, buying Time Magazine. It was about Jeff Bezos buying Washington Post. It was about uh, Steve Jobs' wife, uh, ex, I guess, you know, late, his widow buying The Atlantic. And really this view that magazines uh, are sort of this timeless uh, media businesses are sort of this timeless business, in particular magazines, that, uh, you know, people who have done really well buy them not because they're, they make money necessarily, but because they get to be a part of a community or get to own something, it's like a piece of art. And it just, it, it prompted something because I, I'm not a billionaire, but I, I thought to myself, man, what would I love to, if I were to buy a magazine, what would I love to go buy? Well, Bloomberg was my first thing because I absolutely love Bloomberg. I'm a huge fan of Michael Bloomberg and what he's built at Bloomberg Media. Obviously, I can't afford to spend $70 billion on, on Bloomberg. So I thought about my own hobby of being a pilot. And one of the things about media is that media, you get access. you get you get to talk to people that are, you know, uh, are in the community. You get to talk to founders. You get to talk to big corporations. You get to you in the action and you get to live vicariously through all of the sort of parties that are there. And you're sort of cheering them along the way. And I just love media businesses for that reason. And I thought to myself, man, flying. And I, at the same time, I just taken up my my uh, flying my aviation uh, hobby once again, I started flying again. And I thought, man, I would love to own Fly Magazine. And so I did what anyone should do if they ever want to buy a business is I got on LinkedIn and I sent I sent a LinkedIn message to the CEO. 
And what I think happened, I don't know this for a fact, but I think that there's another person by the name of Craig Fuller who's in aviation. He was president of the AOPA. His name is also Craig Fuller. I think what happened is they thought that 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 Craig Fuller was reaching out to them to buy Flying Magazine and they answered the message. Turned out to be me. Uh, so it wasn't that Craig Fuller. It was a very different Craig Fuller. And uh, and anyways, that's that's how the conversation started. And I said, hey, I'd like to buy Flying Magazine. He said, well, it's not for sale, but we're happy to have a conversation. And we did. And we came to terms. And, you know, two months later, it's now I, I now own it. What were your fears in uh, purchasing this magazine? Uh, I mean, were there any fears or was it pure excitement on your end and you kind of saw the novelty of it like you're talking about? Or were you going into it like, do I really want to buy a magazine where magazines are dying and old media is not doing as well? Kind of what was was your second guessing or fears that you had? I wouldn't call it fears. I've done, you know, Freightways, I've looked at, we've done four acquisitions at Freightways and I probably looked at, I probably look at one a week. Uh, So I do a lot of work looking at businesses to acquire I'm pretty familiar with what the risks are when you acquire businesses. And we do an extensive amount of diligence of research on the business, sort of understanding the the challenges and the issues. I had a very clear sense of where I wanted to take the business. I was never scared. I was entirely intentional to do the transaction and wanted to do it. And frankly, they probably could have charged me 10 times as much and I still would have gone through with it because I was so excited to to have this. This is, like I said, it's an iconic asset. It is no, like I said, to me, this is like owning the Yankees. This is as important to me personally. If I think about the 13-year-old boy that's learning to fly, and now I get to own the most iconic brand in aviation that has meant so much to me throughout my life, I think it's a pretty, pretty awesome deal. So I came in with the intent to close the transaction, but I wanted to learn everything about the business, the good, the bad, the ugly. And I wanted to make sure I had an appreciation for all of the issues or opportunities to to really make improvements. And so we spent an enormous amount of time just understanding where, every, you know, I had the saying, where the bodies are buried. Just tell me what all the issues in the business so that the day that I own it, I already have a game plan on how to execute that. And so we spent a lot of time learning all the nuances of the business uh, and I think by the time we closed the transaction, in fact, the seller, I think at one point got nervous because we we knew a lot of things. And I think most times when you get to the sort of closing, we had this saying people retrade a transaction. It means they change the terms. I think they were nervous that I was going to want to change the terms. And we didn't at all. We, we, we kept our word and we closed the deal. And the only reason I wanted to know everything you could know, and every business has issues, good, bad. I mean, even the best businesses in the world have issues. Uh, it wasn't anything that was sort of showstoppers. It was more just understanding the landscape of the business. And when we closed it, we knew immediately what needed to be done. And we're now executing on that. What was, so now we talked about kind of the fears. Uh, obviously, what was your game plan? Like how, one thing about the really interesting about aviation, where we are right now is there's almost a transition from the old generation to the new generation. And we're kind of in it. We're almost like halfway through it, I'd say, where there's so much new excitement with uh, whether it's TikTok, Instagram, podcast blogs, whatever it may be that's showing aviation and showing younger aviators kind of taking over the media and really getting eyes on them and really kind of pushing aviation in a different way and getting more excitement around it. How do you see transitioning and getting that younger attention, uh, transitioning from maybe like the, the 40 to, to 65 to the 18 to 35? How do you see that working and what's kind of like the goal there? 
Yeah, I agree. I think aviation is going through a renaissance. Uh, I think we're just, I, I don't think we're halfway through it. I think we're really at the starting gates of it. And it's everything from, you know, glass cockpits uh, uh, to electric propulsion that's starting to get a lot of attention to to eVTOLs that are sort of sort of on the horizon. You know, maybe they're five years out, maybe they're 20 years out. But at some point, the technology will evolve where, Sort of the dream of the flying taxi will be there. And but that's far out. I think more near term, you're correct in saying that there is a very clear delineation between the older community and the younger community. And I think I have I have five kids. One is 15 years old, the youngest two are six months, the twins that are quite young. And so I have this sort of big delta in my my family. And I see that my 15-year-old is not really interested in aviation until he went up with me in the air. And so I think it's just an awareness of how, uh, of what it means to be a pilot. And I think what's happened is video consoles and gaming and all the distractions uh, have really taken people that would normally be pilots or want to learn to fly. And they, they're doing other things. You know, they're gaming, they're flying drones. It's all of that, but they don't necessarily want to go learn to fly. It's a lot of work. Let's, you know, to be completely frank is, being a pilot is a lot of work. It's expensive. It's not something that you that people typically do half-heartedly. They really want to be committed to it uh, because you have to be to, to finish it. And I think the the industry has not advocated about the lifestyle. One of the things that I I would say that is most apparent that needs to be done. I think Flying Magazine certainly plays a role in this, but so does the entire community. It's this podcast, it's it's every single media asset, every single voice in aviation needs to do a better job of not focusing on what it means, what it takes to be a pilot and be a successful. And that's important. But it's about why we all learn to fly and why we want to be pirates, the journey, the adventure of being a pilot, what it means to be a pilot. And I think if I look at, at Fly Magazine, one of the things that that it has not done as well as it was what I believe it used to do was remind people of why they're a pilot. There's a lot of great articles about the airplanes, a lot of great articles about sort of accident and a reconstruction, but we need to get back to telling the story of why you want to be a pilot to begin with, what it can do for you as a pilot, what it can do for your life and the opportunities it can open up and the destinations you can go and the beauty and the scenery and just the, you know, really exploring the senses of what it means to be a pilot. I don't think our, our industry, the aviation industry, does enough of that. I think we're so technical. And you look at a lot of the people who are pilots tend to be, you know, the older generation, a lot of them are military, um, you know, or they, they, you know, they, they flying was a part of their, their career. They started when they were young. There wasn't sort of this competition from video games. The younger population doesn't understand what it means to be a pilot. And it's funny because I think every one of us has done this. You take somebody who doesn't, who's never been in a small airplane, and you take them up in the air, and all of a sudden they just have the bug for it. Not every single time, but but oftentimes they're like, "Oh my god, this is the coolest thing I've ever done." I think we as an industry need to get back to reminding people what it meant to fly. I I can tell you from reading the letters that I've got, I now get because of Flying Magazine. There is a this community. And I don't think it's just true about Flying Magazine, but it's true of all aviation. Is we're fanatics about this, and we're passionate about it, and we love it. And we, as an industry, ha- 
should do a better job of telling those stories to people that aren't in it. I think oftentimes we do tell those stories and people get pretty bored of hearing it. But I think we have to remind ourselves that younger people just don't know. They don't realize what it means to be a pilot and what that's all about. Yeah, I would completely agree. Uh, And I think uh, even on the pilot side, like we're talking about, even aviation and jobs, people forget about the fun you can have and they think about train as fast as you can, go to the airlines, get your seniority number and make money. They forget about the fun you can have flying. They forget about the $100 hamburger. They forget about just going out and flying for fun and it's more of a job. And I think that's important, whether it's uh, through podcasts, through print, through whatever, sharing the stories of just like enjoying aviation and how cool it is and how fun it is and how it's just different than anything else. You can't get that same high, that same excitement as you can when you're going flying over in your, your A5 or whatever airplane you have or whatever you're going to go fly. So I would, I would definitely agree. And I think that would be a huge start to show the younger generation because the older generation still knows that you can do that. They've, they've kind of grown up with it and they were the reason why we know you can do that. But the younger generation to see just how fun it is, how accessible it is and the freedom you get from it is huge. It is, you know, it is the thing that, I hope that we at Fly Magazine get to accomplish is telling those stories and highlighting. And as you mentioned, you know, I bought an Icon A5, which is is interesting because like a lot of people in the end, it's a it's a completely different type of aircraft. And but what it does is it opens up an entirely different type of flying than I ever had done, which is being able to fly on water and 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 be able to fly through the mountains on the water and stuff. And I think Icon has done a really good job, not so much in the early years, but certainly in the later years of reinforcing the safety element because I think, you know, these are very powerful machines. Any type of plane is very powerful, uh, but they're also, you know, they're, they're machines that, that are born with a lot of risk. And I think you have to appreciate that and respect it. And I think uh, there is a, an opportunity to tell the stories uh, to really open it up. But there's also an adrenaline rush of knowing that not only are you, are you sort of enjoying this whole new scenery, but you're also doing something that is, you know, is not, sitting on the couch. It's a little bit more dangerous than that. I think, you know, for a 42 year old male who's got five kids, I want a little bit of danger, not so much danger. And, uh, I get to taste that by being a pilot. This will be the last, maybe the last question. I won't make any promises that I asked about flying magazine. Let's say 50 or 40, 50 years from now, or whenever you're getting ready to hand the reins off a of flying magazine, give it to your kids. So you finally convinced to to be a pilot and be in aviation. What would you like to see? Like three things that you would like to be known for, for flying magazine. What would they want? What would they be? I think broadening the the type of people that identify a pilot. So if you go to Oshkosh and this isn't really, I'm not judging Oshkosh because I think it's just general. Oshkosh brings in all people that are aviators. Is you look at the population, it's older white males. That tends to be the general sort of description of pilots. I think we as an industry, and I think Flying Magazine as a media advocate can certainly evangelize this, is we need to find more diversity. We need more women uh, that can become pilots. Only 6% of women are pilots. I think there's more opportunity for diversity of, of color, so people of color coming in. Uh, it's a great way to create upward mobility for people uh, in terms of a career. I would love to see that that Flying Magazine creates a much broader uh, umbrella to the industry and a gateway to bring people into our industry. And I think we have to do that if we are strong advocates of a strong financial uh, uh, marketplace for investment, you need to bring new people into the industry. And the best way to do that is to find populations that 
uh, are not well represented in aviation today. So that's one thing. I'd love to see us reinforce the beauty and the excitement and for many ways, the GQ of what it means to be a pilot. If you think about GQ magazine, one of the things that it has done exceptionally well throughout the years is that it reminds men what it means to, to live the you know masculine lifestyle or the sort of like I don't read GQ magazine, but it, it is renowned as the sort of this idea of what it means to be a male and the cosmopolitan debate for women. What does it mean to be a woman? And I think we at Fly Magazine should remind people what it means to be a pilot. Like, what is the what does it mean to be a pilot? Yes, you need to reinforce the education side of it, and the training side of it. But let's reinforce why we all got into aviation to begin with. It's, you know, it's really cool, aggressive, awesome, powerful machines that are very beautiful. Like, I love looking at photography of beautiful aircraft of just these oh these amazingly beautiful machines i just think it's so awesome in this incredible scenery i'd love to see us reinforce that uh, the essence of what it means to fly and then I, I think you know sort of last i would say is we want to be a destination for aviation content we want to be the place when people are trying to learn about the industry good bad uh or just become educated whether it's news or it's, it's, you know, trying to figure out what airplane we all dream of buying next. I want flying to be that destination. And I think today, we've ha I've had the business for two months. We already have the largest editorial team in flying's 95 histories on staff. And we're not even done. We're just barely getting started. And I think uh, my goal is to create this universal destination where anyone who's interested in aviation uh, we're, we're helping them find a journey. And anyone who's a diehard, been in it for, for many, many years, also can see us as a resource. I love it. Um, yeah, I think that's really cool. And I think that it's needed. And I think it's the resurgence of Flying Magazine is important for all of, of aviation because you guys have the reach. I mean, you have a reach of so many, um, I don't know how many people subscribe, but you have the opportunity just to be in magazine stands in every airport and just, you have such a, a role to play in helping people get in aviation. So it's needed to this step up of content and to create this, uh, to help create the community and, and continue it, its success. So I, I love the fact that it's got some new blood. I love the energy that you're bringing to it. And I hope it, it carries forward throughout the years. And I hope to, to see you reach all your dreams with Fly Magazine. Cause I think, like I said, I think it's a very pivotal role in getting people into aviation. No, I, 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 and likewise, I look, I, I think one of the things that I, I've seen in aviation that didn't exist in supply chain or freight when I first got into it is there is a lot of, you know, you have this podcast and others, as well as really good YouTube accounts and Instagram accounts and stuff. So there's a lot of content that's out there. And I think this is not a zero sum initiative. It's not about flying versus the world, right? Of, of content. It's as, as content creators, we have an opportunity to tell a story and we should all try to be evangelist. It's not a zero sum game. We're all in it together and we all have a vested interest in the success of the industry. And so, um, you know, I, I, that's what is most exciting is, is I am new to the industry in many ways. Uh, because I, I've been out of it for so long. Uh, it's just exciting to be embraced by the community. For sure. Absolutely. And I, I like you said that. It's just, I always say cooperation, not competition. Oh, not, naturally, there's competition. Like competition's good. It, it pushes people to be better. Uh, it pushes you to create more. It pushes you to be your best. Uh, but there's also a good point with uh, cooperation and making sure we're all in it for one goal, and that's aviation as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. Let's take a quick break and hear from RAA. When it comes to financial planning, you might be surprised just how many pilots are missing out on many of the benefits offered by their airlines. 
You see, making the right benefit choices during your open enrollment can have a significant impact on both your current financial situation and your future retirement. But remember, open enrollment only comes around once a year, and that's why RAA is offering free benefits optimization reviews to help you navigate the offerings of your specific airline. Visit raa.com backslash pilot to pilot to schedule your optimization review today. If you got a call from ATC with a phone number to call or a ramp check turns into more than just a ramp check, do you know what you'd do? With AOPA's team of trusted legal service plan attorneys just a call away, they can walk you through the right steps to take with the FAA to help protect your certificates. If you hear from the FAA, having access to their attorneys can help you keep what you're doing most, and that's fly. Go check them out before your next flight at aopa.org backslash PPS. And now back to the episode. Now, a little bit more about Craig Fuller. So why aviation in the first place? What was uh, your original inspiration to, to either fly or to just kind of have this idea of being a pilot? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I was flying since I was 13 years old. So I, I don't even remember how I fell in love with aviation, but I suspect it was Top Gun. I think I watched that movie in the theater six, seven times. I, I, it felt like I went every... You know, I was in the theaters making my parents go every week or something when it was in the theaters in 1985. So, you know, I was, I think Top Gun uh, was was a really important movie, informative movie when I was younger. I actually think Iron Eagle might have been cool. The, the airplanes in Iron Eagle, I thought were cooler, the F-16s versus the, uh, the Tomcats. But regardless, both really cool movies. And I think Microsoft Flight Simulator. My dad had a, we had a Microsoft PC when I was a kid and, uh, we had Microsoft Flight Simulator, and I would play that for hours. I believe those were my two inspirations to get into aviation. And, you know, and then I started flying at 13, and I had the bug. And uh, I I don't know what it is. It's just something about the senses are sort of alive when you're in the air that don't exist for me, have not existed in any other activity. And, um I just can't describe it. I think, I think we all know, you know, obviously if you're a pilot, you, you know what I'm talking about is that it, in many ways it enlightens your senses. I mean, there's a sense of adrenaline and danger because you're, you are having to sort of be fully aware of what's going on, but you're also in many ways free. There's a sense of freedom. And, you know, as an entrepreneur that's building multiple businesses, I, you know, I probably work 18 hours a day straight and, my mind is always turned on to my businesses. But when I'm in the air, I forget all of that. Like I am so concentrated on being a pilot, of flying and taking in the sort of senses and even relaxing in the air that I for, I don't even think about my business. It is to many ways a getaway. And for me, there's nothing like it. And I absolutely, absolutely love it. What were your actionable steps from being like a, a Top Gun fan, an Iron Eagle fan to going to fly? Like a lot of people, you talk to so many people and they're always like, oh, you're a pilot. It's so cool. I've always wanted to be a pilot or I love aviation, but they don't ever go fly. What did you do to take those, that love and actually transition it to an actionable step and actually take off for the first time? Yeah. I mean, I was, uh, there was a small airport, uh, not too far from my house, maybe 10 minutes from my house. Uh, and I was, you know, as a teenager, I was a young, you know, 13 year old. I asked my dad to take me out there and he drove me out to the airport and, you know, I got in, took a lesson and discovery flight and I loved it. And that kicked off my, you know, my, my journey, if you will. And when I was, I, I got my license at 17 and, um, 
I went to college. I, the universities that I looked at all had aviation programs. It's interesting because I actually went to Baylor University uh, because it had an aviation program, even though I didn't finish the aviation program. I only did one semester in it. Uh, but for me, that was an important, you know, it was an important part of my life. And so uh, I think like, you know, most kids, you know, when you're a teenager, sort of your formative years, if you start to learn what you really like and what you're good at and what you're not good at and you start to become attracted to certain things. And, and for me, flying was that thing. You know, I was a little bit of a nerdy kid. Uh, I always loved computers. Um, and I think maybe, I don't know what was going on in my 13 year old mind. Maybe the thought of being in an airplane was a little sexier than building a computer uh, back in those days. I mean, today, I think you can get away with being a, a nerd, a computer nerd, but you know, you're not ashamed of it. The girls don't judge you for it. They think you're going to be the next Bill Gates or Martin Zuckerberg. So you're okay. But in those days, you know, when you know, think about the eighties, you know, beating the computers was a bit nerdy. It was uh, and so I think being a pilot was a little sexier. Maybe that's what attracted me. I really don't know. Did you have the idea of becoming uh, an airline pilot was like, was your goal going into flying to, to fly for a career or was it just always? A no, hobby? I, I, you know, it's funny because I hadn't thought about this. Actually, I remember it, it had to, it had to predate my 13 because my dream as a boy was to own an airport. I don't know why, but I wanted to own my own airport. And I actually, I memorized, and then I wanted to own my own airline. I realized airports didn't really make money. So then it was like, hey, I want to own an airline. And then I realized they don't really make money or most times they don't make money. So, um, but I remember as a boy, I memorized, there was, it's called the OAG guide, uh, which has all of the schedules of every international airline around the world. And they used to print this. It was like a phone book. And I used to carry it around and I had memorized all of the, not the schedules, but all of the hub and spoke systems of all the airlines. And I just became obsessed with sort of understanding how all of the airline networks worked and sort of interconnected. Uh, but I, I don't think I ever dreamed of being an airline pilot. I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. My dad's an entrepreneur. I always want to be a founder of a company uh, just because I, I, I always had that dream of, of it being something that I had helped build. And, uh, and so for me, it wasn't about being a pilot. It was more of like, can I, can I, can I own an airport? Can I own an, an airline? Can I, I want to go start something that is somewhat my own. Uh, and I didn't really care how I got, you know, I wanted to be tied to aviation, but I didn't really care what that meant. How did aviation stick with you throughout your career? I noticed, or I remember you just said at Baylor, you were in aviation for about a month or semester and then kind of went away from it. How did it, did it stick with you for your career? Or did you take some time off and come back? Yeah, I, 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 I stopped flying at 20. I went to Hong Kong on a study abroad program and I'd worked, I had 200 hours worked at my, to get my instrument and I never took the test and I never resumed flying after that. Um, and so really from my, you know, from the time I was 20 to the time that I was 42, I, I never flew again. I never actually, uh, I mean, I flew commercial, but I never flew again, but you know, I joined an air freight company and I did air cargo services. Um, and you know, at Freightways, we're involved in, in air cargo information. So we, we work with a lot of the air cargo providers, uh, airlines and, and, uh, package companies and parcel companies, logistics companies where obviously air cargo is an important element uh, to their businesses. And so providing intelligence to those companies is sort of my intersection of, of the aviation sector. 
But I was completely out of it for, you know, for what most people would say, I was sort of out of the aviation sector for 20 some odd years. When you were out of it, did you kind of have this yearning and longing to get back in it? Or were you just so focused on the entrepreneurial goal of building something that you didn't really miss it? Not necessarily miss it, but didn't think about it in a, uh, I need to get back into this way. I didn't think about it that often, but every now and then I would sort of have this flashback or this thought of, man, remember that time I flew here, or what it was like to be a pilot. But it was just one of those things. I often say that flying is a lot like working out. Like once you're out of shape as a pilot, it's hard to get back into shape. And I never had the time to really do it. I, you know, I was building businesses and really it was this year, you know, my company about five years old, we raised a lot of money from venture capital out in Silicon Valley. And we were always sort of going out to raise more money and, and, and building this business. And, you know, I never really had time to go do anything but that. And all of a sudden, this past year, we've had a great year. And I've effectively fired myself from every functional role I had in the business and brought management in to, to run the business on a day-to-day basis. And now I found myself, like, not do, when, once we just stopped having to raise money and deal with investors... I found myself not having enough to do. And then I had the chance to go back to flying. I got back into the hobby uh, just to sort of, you know, have some something to do. And uh, that's when I rediscovered it. And that's when I rediscovered Flying Magazine, frankly. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, that's what it's like. I, I don't know that I had enormous yearning, but it was something that I always want to get back into. Was your family pretty, or was your wife, I should say, and family, were they against you getting back into flying? Because if, if it's not an aviation family, sometimes there might be hesitation. There might be, uh, like you mentioned earlier, that danger risk. It's like, was it worth it? Was there any kind of pushback at all? Or was uh, your wife and family all like, go for it, go fly, get out of the house. We can't take you. <laughs> well, we just, we had twins. Um, my wife was eight months pregnant with twins. And I told her, you can imagine that. And it's been a, it's been a very rough pregnancy. Actually, she would have been seven months because she... We gave delivery two months early. So we had some preemies. Um, but, you know, she was about a month before she delivered the babies. And I said, hey, I want to go back and fly. And you can imagine, you know, I have five kids and and your husband, who's never talked about flying, wants to talk about doing this relatively dangerous activity, right? Or on the spectrum of safe sitting on the couch to, to you know, getting in a rocket ship is being super dangerous. It's, it's closer to the rocket ship than it is sitting on the couch. And I remember I went to her and she's like, no. And I'm like, Look, I've always, I used to be a pilot. I swear. I don't think she believed me. I'm like, look, I have 200 hours. I promise. And um, she's like, look, she finally gave in. My wife is an awesome, awesome uh, advocate and, and supporter of me throughout my life. Uh, through the time we've met and, and time we've been married. She's like, look, I will agree to let you go up, but you have to get, you have to be retrained. Like, I want you to have an instructor and the instructor sign off on it. And you know, and so I took that very serious and I back basically got, I took 50 hours of instruction, which you think about that, you can get a, a full ticket for 40, but I got 50 hours of instruction with a, with an instructor over the course of a couple of months. And, uh, so I basically just started it completely over, even though I had the instincts, uh, I largely le- relearned how to fly and, um, I was very rusty and it took a while. But my wife has been supportive since. She said she would never fly in a plane with me until our kids were in college. And then a week ago, it was our anniversary. She came up and surprised me. And she said, hey, I want to go flying with you today. I looked at her like, are you serious? She said, yeah. She's like, take me up. And um, 
So we went, we did an hour flight in the icon. Uh, it was awesome. It was just like, it was so cool because it was the first time she had gone up and it meant the world to me. And it's the best anniversary present she had ever given me. That's awesome. Talk a little bit about the uh, the differences in learning and relearning to fly. These happen in two very different times of your life, whether you either had a lot more going on or a lot less going on, but you probably learned a little bit differently than you did when you were younger. Was it harder for you to relearn to fly or did it come back pretty quickly or how would you compare the two? Yeah, I think your your muscle memory comes back relatively quick, quickly. So if you go with the Icon versus, I've flown a lot, the Cessna 172s, 182s, uh, you know, but but typically the, like most people that trained uh, learn in a Cessna, uh, you know, a lot of the sort of instincts you learn or you sort of do the motions that you do in a Cessna, uh, I still had that after 20 years. You know, the physical of cutting the power completely back on on final or, you know, the trim, the trim wheel that was in the airplanes uh, that I was flying. Like all those like muscle memories still existed even t- even though I hadn't been in, I haven't touched a, a control in 20 some odd years that still existed. The, a lot of the sort of higher levels of learning, which include c- communications with air traffic control had completely gone away. Like it was almost like a, for, you know, a language that I, and I, my airplanes parked at a controlled field. So uh, class Charlie airspace. And so like having to relearn the comm side, it was very difficult, uh, much, I, much more difficult than I remembered it being when I was younger. Uh, but there were things that I had habitually still had that I had to, uh, in some ways, unlearn because the icons, frankly, a different airplane. Uh, but there was a lot of things that, particularly the book, the book learning, the regulations, and they haven't changed a ton. There's been some some nuances that have changed, but not a ton. Just relearning the rules, and I and still find myself occasionally getting my you know getting into a little trouble, not in a bad way or breaking a rule, but just being a little sloppier than I, than I probably would have been if I had gone and done the, you know, started from scratch and did the book learning. I think in many ways, I, I arrogantly thought I was in better shape as a pilot when I first got into it. So I back into it. So I didn't, I didn't open up the book and start reading until gosh, about two months into it. And so I think I should have sort of started from scratch and treated myself as not having zero experience. Uh, Cause I think it, it probably wouldn't have been a smoother transition to, to, to get there because I thought I would be more comfortable than I was. There's a lot of ego in it. You're like, man, I've got 200 hours. I should be better at this than, than a zero hour pilot. But I think actually what makes it more dangerous is you think you're better than you really are. Yeah, that's a very dangerous part. And they always, when I was always flying, I was always told from like 500 to 700 hours when you're, you're, you're training to be a professional pilot is a very dangerous time just because you think you know so much and you think you know everything, but that's when stuff happens and you really don't, you're like, you don't know what you don't know. You don't, you don't know everything, but you have this, this kind of macho mentality and you think you can do everything and you think you're invincible. So it's definitely happens at lower times too. And I think it's crazy just to think about the differences of, of having 200 hours and then relearning everything again. It's got to be tough to get back into that groove. Yeah, I think that's, and that's what kept me out of the air, frankly, was I sort of instinctually knew it. And then I got into it and I thought I'd be better. And it wasn't, you know, I still, I still like, I've got a, I put a total of a hundred hours this year. Uh, so I'm basically a hundred hour pilot. If you think about that, I still have a lot to learn. And there is a really good book. I recommend everyone read called the killing zone, which is about mistakes pilot to that very point. It's, you know, the most dangerous time for a pilot is after the 50 hours. So the, 
So, or after the 40 hours, after they've been signed off by an instructor and they have their ticket, for about the first 350 hours is where most of the fatalities happen, largely because of pilot error, because the pilot is overconfident with their own capabilities, but underqualified to actually have them. And so they think they're smarter than they are. And look, there's been a few times just in recent months where I, you know, have put myself in a situation or have made a mistake. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that could have ended really bad. And it's just little things that you just forget. You know, it's it's everything from, you know, one time I, act, I almost, you know, everybody does it, right? You don't have the power setting right. I, I have a retractable gear on the icon. I, you know, one time had the gears down when I was just little things that you time to forget because you get a little sloppier than you did when you first started. And fortunately, none of those things turned out to be serious, but it is very easy to put yourself in situations because you don't have a respect for it. You think you're smarter than you really are. And everyone kind of in their training and when they're building their time and just flying in general, they tend to have, I don't have a better phrase for it other than the oh shit moment where like something's going on (laughs) and all of a sudden you're like, oh shit. Like, (laughs) No, you're right. Have you had that moment? And well, I guess the better question is that scares a lot of uh, not professional pilots, maybe like more novice pilots or people just in a hobby and it gets them out of aviation forever. Have you had an oh shit moment since you got back into flying and since you started flying more? And did you kind of debate like, oh, maybe I'll just do the whole magazine thing and let other people fly? (laughs) No, I was committed uh, and, you know, having the ability to, I haven't done this yet, but like I, I committed and I know there's a lot of this to practice. Uh, a lot of it is getting good instruction. And if I ever got to the point where I was uncomfortable, I would certainly just go back and get an instructor and say, hey, this is something that happened. Can we work through this problem? I, I'm not, I, I don't have so much pride that I would do it. I, I've had a few situations where, you know, I, I've almost stalled the plane on takeoff. Because I didn't ha- I had the flaps down when they should have been up. I, I, you know, I've landed in an improper configuration. I've had the gear in the improper configuration. Probably the worst experience that I had was I flew to the East Coast, up to the New York, uh, during a big storm system. I was sort of determined to go. My wife was up there uh, in New Jersey, and I flew from Chattanooga to New Jersey. A brand new airplane I've only owned for two weeks, and I got myself in an unfamiliar area that I hadn't flown before, and one of the most dense airspaces in the world during a storm system and the storms were far off but i realized i was really underqualified to be flying in this airspace off the east coast and not have been had any type of orientation and haven't really left the the area where my plane is based and i and i I think that was probably the biggest mistake because i like there's storms off to my side and i'm like trying to navigate this and i'm just like how did i get myself in this situation like I had to go over the ocean to avoid storms. And I'm like, I'm going to run out of, I'm going to run out of da- fuel flying over the ocean. I'm going to end up in the water and die. And like, I'm an idiot for, for pushing myself further than I should have gone. And I think that was my oh shit moment of like, I have gone, I've done what I said I would never do is push myself beyond my limits because I was overconfident that I could make the flight. And um, I, if I had a regret, that was probably my biggest regret is thinking I was more qualified than I was. We all have, I think, we all have done things where the plane's been improperly con- uh, configured. Um, I think everyone's probably done that, uh, where you just forgot to, to do something you should have done or you didn't check a checklist. I think this, the thing that I regret most was the, the judgment that I made to fly when the weather wasn't great and I was flying into an unfamiliar part of the country that's one of the densest airspaces in the world, and I was not qualified to fly that. And 
I think that's probably my biggest, that was my biggest moment of saying I've really gone further than I should have. And I, I should have taken an instructor with me at least at a minimum because the instructors offered to go, but I, I was too proud. I wanted to do it myself. And I, I think that's probably my biggest regret. Yeah. that It's very interesting. You know, it's kind of like the Swiss cheese model. Like you follow these factors and they keep going through the holes and they keep going through the holes. And does it eventually end up in a bad situation or do you finally uh, put your foot down and either say no or something goes your way? But like, there's definitely things that just build up and build up and build up. And all of a sudden you find yourself in a situation where you're like, what the heck? Like, how did I, I always told myself I'd never do this, but here you are. And everyone's going to find themselves in a situation like that. And the most important thing to do is just, you can't harp on the fact like, why am I here? You need to harp on how to get out of this, revert back to your training and figure out the solution, plan A, B, C, get out of the situation, get out on the ground so you can learn from this and never do it again. And then so you can tell other people. That's part of the learning in aviation is you to tell your mess up and to go out there and share to other people like, hey, this is what I did. Don't ever do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I tell you, I think the scariest part of that flight was that I was over the East Coast and it was nowhere to land. And so when the storms got really bad, I, I was trying to find places to land. And this is over a part of the, you know, part of the coast that doesn't have any airfields. Like I would have landed if I had the chance. And that was when I, I got into this massive panic of like, oh my God. And then the second thing is the new, I was in a Garmin. I'd been flying the Icon. I went to this other plane, the Technum that had a complete glass cockpit with a, a more advanced autopilot system. And I think honestly, that was the mistake because I really am not, True. I have never flown with an autopilot system, so it was a little bit outside my league, and I never did instruction. So I remember uh, I was with ATC, and I got passed off to a, a different frequency, and I'd forgotten the frequency because she, you know, they're going really quickly when you're in that kind of airspace, or just reading things off really quickly. And I did, I didn't, I had accidentally pressed the wrong button, and it like it lost the frequency, and so I'm flying blind in this controlled Charlie airspace, but I'm really outside of Bravo, and. I, it was, I ended up having to like put, I just put a frequency that I found it. And it was, that's, that's when I knew I was underprepared. So that's funny. New York doesn't care. New York talks to every single pilot, like they're uh, an airline pilot with 10,000 hours. So it's like, you just <laughs> no, gotta, I know. Just boom, it's boom, 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 boom. It's crazy. Scary. Yeah. Uh, I got yelled at by ATC, which I am quite embarrassed to admit that I, like I've been getting yelled at in Chattanooga is one thing. <laughs> uh, getting yelled at by, you've got, in New York, because you know they're busy, and I don't judge them, but I was really sloppy. And I, I, I would say, if I did it again, I would have brought an instructor to help me, help me along that journey, just so that I wouldn't put, my, wouldn't have put myself in a, in a compromising position. And I think, like most times, we sort of our natural instincts take over and we figure it out. But you just never know. Like if I had gotten boxed in by a storm, who knows what would have happened? Luckily, I didn't, and was able to navigate around it. But I, I shouldn't have pushed myself that hard. What would you say is one thing since you have have aviation back in your life that you've learned and you can take away from aviation to put into your professional career? Uh, is there anything that you say, like whether it's checklists, whether it's just some kind of way that aviation operates that has made your brain operate that you can use uh, in your professional career? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think, you know, if you take sort of take the media element out of it, because it obviously there's a direct correlation in, in what I do between both businesses. I, I, I think. You know, the, the checklists are certainly important. Running systems is important. Training is really important for any job where there's a combination of repetition and experience and instincts, right? Like the thing that makes a pilot really great is that they have all the training, but even more importantly, they have the muscle memory and the instincts to get themselves out of these tough situations. Like 
that judgment is really important. And the only way you get instincts is experience. And I think having that repetitive level of experience really enforces those instincts. And so um, I think, you know, one of the things that you could certainly apply in my business is, is just that people who have been doing something for a, a while that can, const- can continue to up their game in terms of training also bring a level of instincts with it that are give them an unfair advantage over others because they have the training and they have the experience to, to, to also reinforce what they're doing. I think those things are really important and probably underappreciated uh, uh, some ways. And then the last thing I would say is I've gotten anything from flying that, that I think is so important. Flying magazine is that the community that is aviation is a really fanatical community. And I think in any business as an entrepreneur, I think I always want to look for businesses that have strong connections to its customers. And I think that is what the aviation community represents to me is that is, and I imagine that these communities, I guess, and other sort of lifestyle activities like rock climbing or, you know, um, uh, you, you know, CrossFit, if you will, and boating, whatever it is, fishing. It's the fact that this community is such a strong advocate and evangelist and fanatical about it. And I think that is something that if I've learned to appreciate anything or really have appreciated anything, it's just how fanatical and committed uh, the aviation community is. What other personal goals do you have for your flying? Do you want to continue to get your, I don't know if you have your instrument. Do you want to get your commercial ATP? Do you want to be jet type rated? Like what's like your end goal for flying right now? Not flying magazine. Well, just I, you personally I'm doing fly. it because I enjoy it. Uh, but I will say that uh, I, if I, having flying magazine, uh, we get the opportunity to fly new aircraft, uh, to write about it and experience it. And so now that I have this opportunity, I want to learn to fly multi-engine. I want to learn, obviously instrument is part of that, but I also want to learn to fly some of the bigger, bigger jets. And, um, so that's, you know, it's certainly on my agenda. It was something I never thought I would do was go through and get more training because I was like, Oh, that'd be fine flying these single engine aircraft. But now that I have the ability to have access to the planes, I want to learn more about it. I want to learn these different types of aircraft, even if I never actually own an aircraft or, or am able to fly, uh, beyond just doing a ride with, you know, a salesperson to sort of show it off. Um, having the opportunity to do that, I think is pretty important or pretty, pretty interesting for me. Yeah, for sure. All right. I got some rapid fire questions here. These are aviation themed rapid fire questions. Just come up with the first answer that comes to your mind. Whenever you're ready, I'll get started. Let's go. What's your favorite airplane of all time? Uh, the DC three. What about a corporate jet? Uh, Honda jet, small piston, uh, Cirrus SR-22. What's the, I guess some flack on this one. I'm very, I have very strong feelings about this airplane, but what is the ugliest airplane you have ever seen in your life? Spruce Goose. All right. Mine's the uh, Piaggio Avanti, the catfish. Okay. <laughs> Got it. Uh, something you wish you knew before you became a pilot. It's, uh, I was 13 years old, so I don't know. <laughs> what is uh, one person you wish you, or I guess I'll ask you this way. Who in the industry would you like to meet most? It could be alive or they could have died. I, you know, I think Charles Lindbergh or the, one of the Wright brothers. What's your favorite overall thing about aviation? 
uh, the freedom in, you get to enjoy and you see the world from a different uh, purview. What's your favorite flight you've ever flown? With my dad, we flew a 1962 Cessna. Gosh, it was a probably a 150, if I remember. And we flew it down to Naples, Florida. Uh, it took eight hours. Oh, dang. That's a flight. <laughs> yeah. What's the hardest flight you've ever flown? <laughs> the one to New York, <laughs> uh, to New Jersey through ATC, which I had no business being in. Favorite airport you've ever landed at? Uh, Murphy, North Carolina. Least favorite airport? Beautiful airfield in, in the mountains there. What's your least favorite? Uh, there is an air park in, uh, called Piney Creek. Uh, trees are on both sides of it. Yeah, that sounds awful. Not, not a place I wanted to fly. Would you rather fly IFR or VFR? VFR. You're, uh, let's do this two ways. You're connecting, you're flying Southwest or whatever airline you like to fly, or you're connecting through Atlanta on Delta. What's your go-to food on a connection in the airport? Chick-fil-A. What about if you're flying your Icon, you're flying a general aviation plane, what's your go-to food to take a crew, crew car to go get? Um, Chick-fil-A. <laughs> I agree with both those. Would you rather fly <laughs> over mountains, beaches, or city? Um, I, I would say city only because the mountains are beautiful and I love flying through them, but they make me nervous. If you could fly, if you could be a professional pilot for an airline, would you rather fly on an Airbus or a Boeing? Airbus. I do the 380. Favorite airline livery? Um, I, I like Cathay Pacific or China Airlines. Would you rather fly, so let's say you're near Icon, would you rather fly as many touch and goes as you can possibly do? It could be on water. Or would you rather take that Icon for as far as it can possibly go? Uh, for the Icon, definitely touch and goes. <laughs> What's the hardest check ride you've ever had? The one I failed. <laughs> What'd you fail? It was my original uh, private. What'd you, what'd you bust it on? I think stalls. I just got overly nervous and and... and I, I, I don't know why, because that's something that's pretty instinctual, but I think I just I overthought, the, overthought it. Here's one, and this can be, we'll do this aviation-wise, and we can do it professionally as well. What's your biggest win in your career? Uh, I, I think getting the opportunity to own Fly Magazine. What's your biggest regret of your career? That I had given up. It's taken me 20 years to get back in aviation. If you could buy, or what's your favorite um, air, airplane manufacturing company between Piper and Cessna? So if you could fly a 172 or a Warrior or an Aero, what would you choose? I mean, I, I've flown the Cessna, so I'd have to say the Cessna. And your favorite airline, let's say you have an unlimited amount of money to buy the nicest cabin airplane ticket, whatever it is, for the longest flight, what airline would you choose? Uh, either Singapore or Qatar. Those are good. You're, you can't get those out of Chattanooga, though. <laughs> <laughs> There's no 380s landing yeah, that. No uh, direct flights to Chattanooga from Singapore. Uh, well, Craig, thank you so much. I got one more question for you, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, I always ask this kind of, what are your three tips for success that you give to someone? Whether it's someone that's listening that wants to be a pilot, wants to be an airline pilot, wants to be successful in an entrepreneurial career, or just in general, just live a successful life. What are three tips or kind of three strategies you always live by that have uh, pointed you in the success? Well, I think who, you know, who is your, your support group? So having a strong support group, my, for me, it's my wife, my father, uh, in my business, is my board, but having people that, that have a vested interest in your success, not people that have a vested interest in their own success, but have a vested interest in your success. And I think the strongest financial decision you could make is whom you marry. So remember that when you're picking a spouse, 
Um, and so that was number one. The second thing is, I, I think, find out what you're good at and double down on that. So we all have undiscovered instincts and undiscovered talents. Uh, once you sort of discover that you're effectively good at something, continue to reinvest in that. And that could be being a pilot. That could be being an entrepreneur. That could be being a carpenter. It doesn't matter. If you are exceptionally good at something, reinforce it and nurture that hobby or that talent, and you'll go a lot further in life. Uh, and the third thing is, you know, I think there's always this desire to, to buy the bigger uh, house, the bigger airplane, the bigger cars. I think in my life, I did a lot of that when I was younger, and I was always sort of, you know, struggling because I, I did it when I didn't have the money to do that. Uh, one of the things that I've had the opportunity to do is that later in my life, uh, where I've had the ability to do it is now I can I can actually make that without having to sweat it when I sort of stretch too far. So those are the things that I think, whether it's in business or in personal life, that sort of keep me going. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Craig. I really appreciate your your time. I know you're a busy man. Uh, we can debrief a little bit once we get off, but just want to wish you the best of luck with Flying Magazine. Like I said, I think it plays a, a very instrumental role in uh, getting more people in aviation and continuing the success of aviation and general aviation. So I wish you nothing but the best. And uh, I can't wait to see what's next for Flying Magazine and for you and Freight Waves or whatever it may be. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. No Thanks problem. For having me. Aviation, that is a wrap of the Pilot the Pilot podcast, episode 191. We are so close to 200 episodes. This is absolutely insane. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Craig Fuller. Let me know what you think. Email me, send me a message on Instagram, uh, what you think about Flying Magazine, what the future holds for it, what you think about this move, and how it can play a role in aviation for, for old generations, current generations, and future generations as well. But Aviation, I hope you're having a great day. And as always, happy flying.